my goal for this morning is to remind you that the gospel calls us to be a people who fight for the fullness and flourishing of life. Always. That the first call of the gospel is to love. And we can't lose sight of that. The gospel calls us to love um, when it's inconvenient. The gospel calls us to love when there's a price attached to it. The gospel calls us to love, especially those who are on the margins of cultural power, those who are most vulnerable to exploitation. True religion, the Apostle James tells us, is to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. James highlights two categories of people that are uh, culturally, historically, most likely to be abused by cultural power structures. Women and children. Because throughout history, those two classifications of people, of course there are more, but those two classifications of people have found themselves continually on the outskirts of cultural power, and as a result have found themselves abused by those who have power. And for many of my Christian friends, this is in fact, I think, the line that is drawn down the center of the debate. Do we prioritize our love for vulnerable and exploited women in crisis? Or do we prioritize our love for babies who are vulnerable and in crisis? And I just want to set the stage to say that um, there are important conversations to be had here. Some of you are frustrated um, because as you have seen this cultural moment evolve into its present state, as you have seen uh, things moving forward, um, you're frustrated because you see how women are uniquely vulnerable to suffering, exploitation, pain, and injustice um, purely because of the nature of the biology of human reproduction. A woman will always pay a higher price for a child. This is biologically a law. <laughs> There's just no way around it. A woman is always going to pay the premium for bringing a new life into this world, which puts her into a uniquely vulnerable position, a position that can be abused and manipulated, and put her in a position where she um, isn't able to make choices for her own well-being as a result of powerful forces around her. We see this at play uh, globally in um, 
parts of the world where, where women are, are having a choice in who they marry, how they marry, when or how they have children, which limits their ability to have any kind of income or independence, which keeps them in a position of perpetual servitude um, and allows them to be exploited. This is the reality. Um, and we see this even reflected in the United States. The majority of abortions in the U.S. aren't coming from teenage crisis pregnancies. There are some of those. Um, but that's a, a small part of the story. The majority of abortions in the United States aren't coming from unwanted teenage, uh, or excuse me, um, from um, women using abortion as a convenient form of birth control. There are some of those, sadly. Um, but praise God, they are a small portion. The great majority of people who are having abortions in the United States are women who are having one abortion one time. Most people having abortions are having abortions for the first time and they don't have another one. Most of them are women in their mid to late 20s who already have kids. Most people who have abortions already have children in the home. Most of them have a certain amount of college, but they have not completed college. Most of them, for whatever reason, are alone. And these women now face choices about how to navigate unpaid time off from work, potentially the loss of their job while simultaneously having the requirement of continuing to feed her children, provide shelter, and make other financial choices necessary for the survival of herself and her children. Y'all, there are issues here that love demands we pay attention to. There are, there are ways that we should step up and step in in love. So I, I want you to know, those of you who are um, wrestling, struggling with the events that have taken place in our country this week, um, they, one of the reasons I hate the whole metaphor of cultural warfare is that invariably it polarizes sides and creates two choices. You can't have nuance or complexity. You can't have conversations about multiple factors in a single debate because as soon as you make any concession, it feels like you're actually losing the war because the goal is to win the war, not to actually have a conversation. And as a result, what ends up happening is that there are people who are gripped by the complexities of what's taking place and they feel like they have to camp themselves on one side or the other. They feel like they have to make hard choices about which political, ideological uh, camp and tribe they're going to join. I'm just trying to share that I understand that there are powerful complexities at play here and that women are uniquely vulnerable and that you, women can be uh, manipulated by power structures, um, expectations, but um, I also want to make it clear that um, from my understanding of the Word of God and my understanding of um, 
what it means to love our neighbor. Um, that the call that abortion is absolutely necessary as a solution to these issues is misguided and wrong and not in line with our call to love even as we have been loved. This is not a radical position. This is the position the church has taken from the beginning. The church in the earliest days made it a priority to care for unwanted children and to fight for them, born and unborn. One of the very first pro-life Christian statements was drafted by a guy named Tertullian. Tertullian is one of our earliest church fathers. He lived about 150 years after Jesus. And as he wrote to that first century church, he was speaking to a church that existed in a Roman culture in which abortion and infanticide were normalized for numerous reasons. It was abortion and infanticide on demand. And so uh, there were many reasons. Uh, often it was girls who were most at risk because families wanted sons to carry on their line. And so it was very common for, uh, they called it exposure. That's, that was just the terminology, the Greek terminology for infanticide and abortion exposure. They would um, eliminate the children that they didn't want, um, either through invasive um, surgical means or through simply leaving a child out to be exposed to the elements until that child died. The early church made very clear that, first of all, they were to be distinct from the world in this practice, and second of all, that this practice offered a unique opportunity for them to carry the love of Christ out in very practical ways. And so Tertullian crafted the very first statement, and he was speaking out against this Roman practice of exposing children. There are layers of suffering and injustice in this world but the church has always been at her best when she focused her energies on protecting the rights of the least of these. There are layers of injustice, layers of suffering. And often in any given situation, you have multiple people who are being abused, whose rights aren't being honored. There are layers of injustice. And the church is always at her best when she goes to the bottom and works her way up. When she identifies with those that are most vulnerable, most at risk, most in need of someone to come and exercise their power on their behalf, those who have the most vulnerability. So there's a lot of work to do, y'all. We have a unique cultural moment um, where the divisions that run through our culture aren't just political and ideological, 
they run right through the church too. And as a result, we are in danger of seeing congregations formed around political and ideological convictions in opposition to others, defining themselves not by what they are, but by what they're not. Identifying who their enemies are and then identifying who they are in comparison to their enemies. This is a unique and I think potentially exciting opportunity for us to be people who are radically defined by love. There's a lot of work to do and a lot of conversations to be had, but let's not lose sight of this, that God isn't at the end of the day going to ask us what political accomplishments we made. He's not going to ask us who we voted for or what protest or what parade we joined. He's going to ask us very simply how well we loved our neighbor. That is the driving ethic, motivation, foundation, and goal of the Christian life. And like the early church, I hope that we can come to be known primarily by our love. There's a, uh, a letter fragment that we have from about 140 AD. It's called the, the Epistle to Diognetus. Um, Diognetus was a Roman official who was trying to evaluate whether this new growing Christian presence in the Roman Empire was a threat. And so he had a guy go out and do a study. We don't know who the guy is. We just have a copy of his letter. Uh, reporting back to Diognetus about um, the nature of his finding. And I love this letter. I love the description that he has of the church in the first century. And I wish it's the same description that would be given of us today. Listen to this. This is what he says. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general. They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. I just, I love the wonder that this guy has as he looks at this city within the city, this people among the people. He looks at Christians and he says they're model citizens. They carry out their civic duties. They don't need to mark themselves out in unique or weird ways. They, they blend in with whatever human or country or, or city they're in. 
but they are marked by a set of values that make them absolutely unique and distinct. And those values cause them, even though they have the full rights of citizens, to live like the aliens. They identify with those that are most vulnerable and they exercise their power on their behalf. They don't exercise their power to keep what they have and get more, to protect themselves, to promote themselves, to defeat their enemies. They exercise their power to bless those in need of blessing. They're citizens, but they live like aliens, right? They, they have families and children, but they don't expose them. They're not driven by the same values of, of self-protection and self-promotion. They, they're generous with their meals and their goods, but not with their wives. They are set apart by an internal moral compass whose true north is love. And as a result, they are remarkable. He says, I love that. There is something extraordinary about their lives. Y'all, that's what I want the community to say about us. That's what I want this culture to say about us. That, that, that maybe we don't agree. Maybe we don't, we don't move in the same direction or fight for the same things or think in the same way. But there is something extraordinary about them. Because the compass of their hearts are set to the true north of God's love. Y'all, the church has always had its most profound impact on its culture. Not when it inhabited the halls of power, but when the love of Christ so fully saturated their hearts. They identified with the weakest, the broken, and the hurting. And the power of the gospel worked from the bottom up. When we get obsessed with gaining, keeping, and exercising power, we're in danger. We need to be a people focused on loving well, generously, freely, radically. Yeah, we need to fight for and care for both the widow and the orphan, both the woman and the child in their distress, the women who are vulnerable and the children that are vulnerable as a result. We need to love them even as God has loved us, sacrifice for them, identify with them, provide for them, and meet them in their need. I have a few applications that I want us to walk away with, but before I get to the applications, um, one of the reasons I ha I, I'm so hesitant about stepping in in some ways into a topic like this is that there's so much cultural noise that often there are wounds, deep wounds, quiet griefs that um, go unnoticed, unseen. Um, and I just want to pause and make it very, very clear. 
that if you are a woman who has had an abortion, we love you. There is grace for you. You are not an alien and an outsider to us. If you're a man who has lost a child through abortion, either because you inappropriately exercised your power to protect yourself, or because the woman inappropriately exercised her power and robbed you of your ability to protect your child. We love you. And there is grace for you. And you belong in this community. The reality is we're all stumbling forward in grace. And we're strongest. When we don't create artificial divisions about who gets grace and who gets to stumble with us. I don't know who you're tempted to judge. I don't know who you're tempted to consider the other, but as we move into our application, that's, I, I want you to think about it. Because the reality is we're all desperately in need of grace. And we're strongest when we're growing together in it. And so I just want to leave you with a few thoughts um, as we wrap up. First, um, don't get sucked into the culture war mentality. There's only winners and losers in the culture war, and as a result, there's only losers. Love's not concerned about who wins. Love's concerned about who's vulnerable. Love's not looking to exert power to destroy. Love is concerned about exerting power to protect. And that will lead to conflict at times. And that will lead to division at times. But in the conflict and in the division, the dividing line needs to not be you're the one who's wrong and evil and bad and I'm going to overcome you and destroy you. The dividing line needs to be love compels me. I love you and I love them and love compels me. And if you must separate yourself from me as a result... I'll still love you at our party. James tells us in James 1.19 to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And that is so hard to do on cultural hot button topics where there are quick takes and quick takedowns. Everybody has their little quip that they love to throw out there and everybody loves to retweet or to share or to like Man, that you just owned them, the bad guys. Being quick to, uh, quick to hear means listening to the complexity. Trying to understand the topic, even if you strongly disagree with them, to understand their perspective on the topic over which you disagree. To actually be able to hear them, understand them, to actually be able, if, you, if, if, if they were to ask you to, to be able to articulate their concerns in a way in which they would agree with your articulation. 
When we turn things into a culture war, we're not interested in actually knowing what people think. We're trying to summarize it into quick sound bites that we can defeat. And as a result, you know what this is like when you get on social media and somebody represents you in a way that doesn't actually represent you. You know how infuriating that is. You know how much that hurts. You know how dehumanizing that is, right? We want to be people who aren't doing that, <laughs> that are actually listening and growing in our understanding of the complexity of the issues that we're quick to hear and slow to speak. We're not listening to respond. We're not listening to get our talking points and our counter arguments. We're not listening in order to find out how we can defeat or win. We're listening to understand, understanding that, that in many ways, listening is in the end going to be more important than speaking. Because at the end of the day, if we see each other, respect each other, share love for one another, we're actually going to be able to have a profitable conversation in which we grow. We're actually potentially going to be able to find some common ground on which to build. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And if that means turning off social media, turn off social media. Social media is a, a dumpster fire on the best of days, generally. Right now, it's bad. It's just hot takes, takedowns, slams. Um, yeah. Be slow to anger. Don't lose sight of the fact that the person with whom you disagree is created in the image of God. And if you love God, you are called to love them. They might be wrong. They might be deadly wrong. But that doesn't mean that you could ignore the glory for the ruin. They're still created in the image of God, and you are still called to love them, even as Jesus does. If you have higher standards than Jesus, you're no longer following him. And your standards are not higher. You're only pretending they are to justify your need to judge. Listen, we don't want our community to become like a Thanksgiving meal. You know what Thanksgiving's like? For most people, it's pretty miserable. You know why? Because when you go to a Thanksgiving meal, do you show up to have honest, vulnerable conversations? Is that what happens at Thanksgiving? Now, generally, you show up to a Thanksgiving meal just doing your best to keep the peace. Because you know there are people around that table, you don't want to get them going, right? Weird Uncle Al, right? Let's just don't provoke him. Don't give him an opportunity. He'll go off, and then Aunt Mary is going to go off on him, and then pretty soon it's just going to be a mess, right? A successful Thanksgiving meal is often a meeting without conflict. How often do you like to go to a Thanksgiving meal when it's like that? Not even once a year. And you take a deep breath when it's all over, and you're able to go home and say, okay, that got through that. We don't want our community to be like that. You know what I'm saying? We want to be a community where people can actually express their opinions, have ideas, wrestle with their convictions, say, man, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I feel bad about this. I'm really sad about this, right? We want to be a community in which people can be authentic and real because that's the only way you actually have community. And that can only happen in the context of love, right? So that's the second thing, is commit to love. 
Jesus was asked by his critics what the great command was. They were trying to trap him, and he said the great command is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Love. On that one command, all other commands rest. If you are obeying the command to love, you don't need another command. There are no other commands necessary if you're obeying that one. I didn't just make that up. Paul said that in Romans 14. We'll get there. But um, love God, love your neighbor. This is the great command. And this is what I want you to think about, y'all, in all your interactions about this topic and all of them, on social media, out of social media. Love needs to be your motivation. Love needs to be your goal. If it's not, your heart's the problem, not them. Always. You need to be motivated by love and moving toward love. And if it's not, your heart is the problem, not them. Your heart's the problem, not the conflict. Your, your heart's the problem, not the issue. As followers of Christ, we need to be undone by love, grounded in humility, and growing in the generosity of love, even with people with whom we disagree. Which is why Jesus said, yes, you must even love your enemies. Even those who work against you. Right? If we're not doing this, we're not doing the Lord's work. And we're not leading, following the Spirit's leading. Commit to love. And the third thing is let's commit to loving the least of these. Let's actually commit to loving the least of these. You know, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day about some technicality. And, and, and he said, you know what? There's coming a day when I'm going to look at many of you and I'm going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. These were moral people, religious people, upright people. He said, I'm going to say to you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And, and you know what's interesting is it doesn't highlight their moral failures. He doesn't highlight their... their uh, religious failures. He highlights their failures to love. This is from Matthew 25. Jesus is saying to them, he says, for when I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they all answered saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not minister to you? And he answered and said to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it to me. Let's commit to practically loving. Let's continue investing, right? The Restore Network. It's one of the reasons we, we invest so heavily in the Restore Network because there are many children that are born and are in crisis. And we want to make sure that we're doing our part to open our homes in generosity to support those kids, to meet kids in crisis, to come alongside parents who find themselves in crisis, right? It's part of the reason we support Be a Bridge in, in Alton, right? As they come alongside young, vulnerable, adolescent girls and train them for life and give them community and, and, and mentoring and, and help them navigate the difficulties so that they en don't end up in, in crisis, right? Find a way to invest 
It's not good enough to simply vote your conscience. You must invest in love. So that's my final request is for you to consider your own heart. What are you doing practically to feed the hungry, to clothe the, the naked, uh, to, to meet the needs of those who are ill? Not, not to puff you up in pride, not to give you, but to invite you to consider, are you in fact carrying out the call of love in practical ways to meet the needs of the least of these? It's as we do that we become the shining light on the hill. You want to talk about not hiding your light under a bushel. <laughs> love. Love generously. Love freely. Love financially. Love relationally. And work for the least of these. All right. I'm going to close this. And um, we're going to pray and, and uh, share communion. Um, and sing our way out of here. I don't have reflection questions for us this morning. Um, I barely had a sermon for us this morning, but um, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to share communion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a Father, you are a God who thinks of the least of these. Because the reality is we're all the least of these. We are all desperately in need of your grace, desperately in need of your love. We are not only um, forgiven through the work of Christ, we are set free through the love of Christ. And we come to recognize that, that these worldly power structures that we have around us, things that make us feel important or make us feel safe or make us feel more significant than others or give us the ability to exercise our will at the cost of others, that all of these are artificial structures that at the end of the day have been perverted by our sin. Lord, we want to use our power for good. We want to exercise our freedom in a way that... that just announces the beauty of grace. We want to be extraordinary like the early church was extraordinary. Extraordinary in our love, extraordinary in our generosity, extraordinary in our passion to care for the least of these. Awaken our hearts to this exciting moment that we might not be those who are pulling back afraid, that we might not be those who are, are, are avoiding and running because there's so much noise in the culture, but we might be those who grow strong in grace and move with the boldness of love into these spaces that your name might be lifted up and that your grace might be set free in the lives of those who desperately need it. Meet my friends where they are this morning. I pray for those especially who have unique pains and wounds related to this. Spirit, will you come and call them to your comfort? Give them grace. Empower their voice that they might be able to speak from a place of grace and call others to the freedom of love.
that you would work against the enemy who would seek to imprison them in shame or, or to make them feel rejected by those who love them. Call them into the bright sunshine of the freedom of those who have been forgiven. That we might stumble together, Lord, forward in grace. We pray all of this in the beautiful and the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said,